the Daily Rios Digest, June 4th, 2022. Hey everyone, this is your host, Peter. So this is the 48th Digest. I have four more, which will bring me to the 10th anniversary of the De La Rios on July 2nd. And I wanted to just chat a bit here in today's opening segment about ideas for the future of the De La Rios, or specifically this Digest format. Because 10 years, 10 years, wow. If you've been listening that long, you know that it hasn't been 10 straight years of podcasting, but 10 years of the Daily Rios in some format or another, the first year being the truest year of that daily idea. That's why a year ago, I came up with the Digest format as a way to still be daily, still create or think about content in a daily manner, but not have to actually release on a daily schedule. So the Digest compilation has had some great feedback and I'm happy with how it turned out and how it has helped to keep my ideas and my thoughts concise, but it also has allowed me the opportunity to podcast about various things, such as um, I really like doing the ongoing Road to Danger Street segment. I liked that I could split up Timeline Tuesday and talk about different anniversaries in different segments. There's been a lot of movie talk. Uh, It's been fun to do the trivia or, you know, the few times that I did full um, editions of one topic. For instance, the DC Fandom Digest or when George Perez passed and I was able to do a whole digest devoted to devoted to George. So the modular nature of the Digest has always been a lot of fun. Now, what about after the 10th anniversary? You know, what about year 11? Do I keep going? You know, that's what I've been thinking about for the past couple months. To be honest, there was a moment where I thought about rebranding and coming up with a new name, doing a new, uh, doing a name change. But that would just be disastrous because, well, for just for the simple reason that I've already paid this domain name for the next two years. So it's like, I, no, I, can't, I guess I can't really do that. And I've always stated from even the very beginning that the Daily Rios was meant to be everything. Podcasts, Instagram, site posts, uh, that's a lot of the initial um, drive behind the whole daily Smallville thing, which I, which I failed at. So it doesn't always work out that way, but I do try. And I really appreciate those of you who follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram, leave comments everywhere, including the website. I mean, it just makes me feel, it makes me feel like I have friends. (laughs) It makes me feel like there's a, a small little community around the podcast, which I love. So here are some options about how to continue, and most likely I will post uh, a poll on Twitter about all of this because I really do enjoy hearing from you. So I want you to go over there and I want you to make uh, make a, a decision based on these choices. So for the Daily Rios as a whole, I could 
keep the same format and and keep doing the digests, um, you know, which I I behind the scenes I refer to them as the weekly rios. You know, that's easy enough. I just keep going the way I've been going. I could continue with a slightly new concept to the digest. That would be option two. I could discontinue the digest and just expand back out into doing regular episodes and just drop them whenever whenever I drop them. Or finally, and oh my god, I could go back to the true year one daily format. Yikes. Let's talk about these uh, options going backwards. For that last one, to go back to a true daily, once a day, five days a week format, I would have to take the advice I've received from several of you, and quite honestly, I would have to start a Patreon, because that schedule, that was like a part-time job when I did it in year one, and given how things are going on in my job life right now, there's just no way that I could do a daily um, year again without financial support of some of some kind. See, what I've found out in this last year is that creating daily content but releasing in the digest format, I'm very conscious of the length of the overall episode, so I never really want to go too far beyond an hour. So I keep things really concise and these segments are, are really to the point. And that way I don't demand too much of your listening time. And if I don't complete an idea in one day, I can always double up for the next, right? That's what modular podcasting allows. There's a lot of flexibility of my time. But with actual daily episodes, creating and recording and editing and releasing for each specific daily release, that means I have to find time every day even even short episodes they the short episodes take at least 2 hours so there's a lot of lot more demand and daily episodes could very well stretch that hour mark you know it's been that way in the past i can remember starting year 1 wanting episodes to be bite sized easily consumed since they were daily but then they started to stretch 30 minutes 45 minutes an hour so i'm doing five, even 30-minute episodes a week and putting them out daily, that's longer than than having to create, um, you know, for, for the digest. So, yeah, the daily format, it's an option, but an option probably with very low chances. Um, okay, so then the option of just discontinuing the digest format and just releasing episodes as they happened without any format at all or any release schedule um, that's a way to get around having to be so rigid but I I know that I do need some kind of schedule or I get lazy so I might start out with good intentions of trying to be consistent putting out you know two episodes a week three episodes a week but there have been years of the Daily Rios where I barely released a podcast if at all and I enjoy this format too much to get lazy and I feel like um, there's a lot of stuff that has been really good in this past year that I want to continue. So I, I that that's another option that probably has very low chances. Okay, so then the first two options I mentioned, 
The first one being the easy one, just continue as is and just roll along as if the, you know, the year just keeps continuing and and I keep doing the daily dig- uh, the weekly digest as as is. Or continue the daily Rios digests but with a little bit of a content change. And this is what I've been thinking about the most. It's not I'm not quite certain it it's the right answer either. I'm not trying to vie for this option. I'm just throwing it out there because I like to be transparent and open. So the idea would be continue the digest, but I would concentrate the content to mostly talking about individual issues, reviews, discussions, breakdowns, comic book issues, right? So like a true Marvel Comics Presents or Action Comics Weekly. I would write up a list of comics, miniseries, maxi-series, titles that I've been meaning to read over the years, and I would talk about them issue to issue, week to week, based on whatever day they happen to fall within the digest. So the first new digest of year 11 uh, would be still broken up into five segments, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Monday might be issue one of a 12-issue series, and then Tuesday would be issue one of a four-issue miniseries, etc., etc. And then, so that first digest would be all number one issues. Then we get to the second episode. Then we get to the third episode. Then we get to the fourth digest. By the fourth digest, I'm probably hitting the end of a four-issue miniseries. So that by, by the time I get to the fifth digest, that particular day, maybe it happened on a Tuesday, I would now swap in a new title. So Monday would be like a 12-issue run. Tuesday was a four-issue, then another four-issue, or maybe I jumped to a six-issue or a three-issue or an eight-issue, et cetera, et cetera for each day. So it is like a true anthology, like I mentioned, like like uh, those two titles or like a manga, Tangoban, or, you know, um, all just various publishers, various titles. And I would probably keep things to a 12-issue limit so that I can try to go over as many titles as I can uh, unless something comes up and I really want to talk about them. The gamble for that is... I have to hope that those initial five choices are interesting enough to hold your attention to come back week to week to week or hope, you know, or some of them are interesting enough and then the one that you're not interested, hopefully it runs out eventually and then you get to hear a new choice. You know, that's the gamble. And then that can be super limiting because then what do I do about New Comics Wednesday, Timeline Tuesday, etc., etc. So I certainly understand that 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 also is not the best um, option as well. So probably a fifth option that I'm not going to list, but I, I realize it's, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to create this poll, but I'm probably answering the question for myself anyway. The other, the fifth option would be do the, daily, the, the digest weekly with a mix of of what I have been doing and maybe with what I want to do, you know. The Road to Danger Street segment, that's basically the format that I'm talking about. Or when I talk about uh, the giant size era X-Men, or when I started to try to read Why the Last Man, and I only got two trades in, but that's a similar format. So in many ways, I've already I've already approached that idea, 
and I, I just, I think I want to do it more, or I have some ideas of certain anchor titles, like The Road to Danger Street. Like, I have an idea for one or two titles that could be anchors for certain days um, that maybe I can throw in. So, the digest is modular enough. I can do pretty much anything I want. And I have a feeling that the combination of those last two options are probably going to be the one that wins out. So anyway, okay, enough navel-gazing. I think you get the point. Go to Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Look for that poll. I will I will put it, I will pin it so you can uh, let your voices be heard. Let me know what you want to hear for the Daily Rios or the Digest, the Weekly Rios for year 11. Tell me what you want to hear. That ring, organize a thing, jazz or swing, nice bling bling. That's on eBay. Buy today, and it's on its way. Other users say you will feel okay. That's on eBay. Can we talk eBay for uh, a segment here? I don't think I've I've talked about eBay much on the Daily Rios over the last ten years. I think most of the times when I have a thought about eBay, I take it to Twitter. But I've had some recent experience experiences, and I think it would be interesting to share because I know a lot of you probably purchase on eBay, maybe some of you sell on eBay. And uh, this is coming up because um, it really centers around the topic of the aspect of shipping. Shipping properly versus not shipping properly. <laughs> So I recently purchased two magazines from the 80s featuring the Titans, and I'll talk about them somewhere along the way. Um, and these are magazines that I I don't think I've seen before, so I wanted to jump on them fairly quickly because they were already kind of uh, not expensive, but they were of a certain value, and who knows if that, that value will increase. The first magazine I got was great. You know, it, it was uh, it had two pieces of cardboard on either side. It had uh, a plastic sleeve. It was in a standard magazine size package, uh, you know, mailing package. It probably could have been a little more secure, but it survived. It survived going through the Postal Service. The second one, not so much. It was also in just a manila magazine package no bubble wrap. It only had one piece of cardboard on one side. It had no plastic sleeve, even though in the eBay picture it was uh, it, it was in a magazine bag. Um, and that's it. There was absolutely no protection from the weather. There was no only one cardboard and it was cut from a you know just a standard cardboard box, which is fine. you know I do that as well. Um, but in the picture it looked like it had a backing board. And um, just in one of those very thin manila shipping envelopes. And even when I saw the picture or when I got the package, I took a picture of the outside because I was like, this looks like it got a little banged up. I opened it up and that's when I discovered it had no protection whatsoever to the weather, no bubble wrap, no nothing. I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. And for the price I paid, it was terrible shipping. So... Some of the corners got dinged, which means it's not the same condition that it was advertised as. And um, 
it wasn't destroyed, but it was probably in a much better condition than when I received it. And I just immediately went to eBay and emailed that person and said, look, this is unacceptable. Um, uh, you know, for what you charged for shipping, you didn't even come close to the total of that amount. You could have used the rest of it to put another piece of cardboard on it, put a plastic bag on it, you know, wrap it up in uh, some newspaper around it just to try to protect it a little more. If you've ever received a package of comics from me, you know that I know how to package very well. I try, to, I try to anticipate that these packages get tossed around for, you know, every time they get to a new stop. And you can't just assume that a flimsy magazine um, mailer is going to do the job. And then one piece of cardboard and no plastic? Like, no, I'm sorry, you're, you're going to get a negative response from me because that's just unacceptable. It does not cost anything to, to you know, especially if you're someone who gets comics in the mail, you get a you get cardboard boxes all the time. If you ship from Amazon, you get cardboard boxes all the time. Save them, cut them up, do the work, and and wrap up your shipments. Um, get some cheap brown paper wrapping paper and wrap that around. You know. Stick them in a comic bag if it's a if and I'm talking about like if it's just like a few comics. If it's a lot of comics, chances are you need a box anyway. But even then, you you should wrap them, bubble wrap. Um, you know, as much as I hate them, the 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 little peanuts things. You know, the, it just was really unacceptable, and I was like, nope. So I had them refund the shipping cost at least um, because as I said it wasn't like super super damaged but it was enough it was noticeable from the picture to what I got and uh, I wanted something back for that because that was just not not cool so uh, ship ship well package well um, maybe one day I'll do like a time-lapsed uh, video of me binding up a whole bunch of books if I'm gonna ship them out because um, you know, I, I, I stuff the boxes with, uh, bubble wrap or newspaper, um, as well as packaging the books themselves ultra securely that even if you try to shake the box, once they're in there, nothing moves. It's, it's secure. And it doesn't really add that much to the shipping. If you're shipping media mail, you're still, you know, depending on the size of it, it's still only around five, six bucks. So that's the first thing. Um, then there was the notion, and I've talked about this on Twitter, of who gives feedback first. And, you know, both of these sellers um, did not give feedback until I responded. Well, I didn't give feedback yet for the second one. And I just feel like if I made my payment, that's it. My job is done. You know, as long as I'm fair about once I get your package, my job is to pay. So once you ship it out, ship the package out, at least, then you should be giving feedback, you know, right away. And then when I get it, if I have any problems, that's what the communication is for. I'm not going to just settle it through a feedback. But I just feel like, uh, you know, first of all, I know you don't need to leave feedback, but I just think waiting until your buyer receives your package and gives you feedback is kind of scummy, honestly, because it's like you're purposely waiting. Um, uh, you know, you're holding out your end of the bargain on some on some level. So I know that that's uh, uh, 
an argument that goes back and forth, and there's no real answer. Um, and then I was doing a random search for Titans posters, and I just saw all of these auctions of people selling quote-unquote posters and saying that they were pulled from comics or pulled from magazines or pulled from portfolios or that they got these as prints from the art from George Perez on you know the convention circuit and I'm like hmm how many of those prints did you actually buy why does it look like it's just a photocopy of a cover because the image has creases like for instance it's New Teen Titans number one the original volume one and it's a cover it's a scan of the cover and you can see creases, and you can see the UPC symbol, and I'm thinking, why would a print have all that stuff? Why does it look so flimsy? Why does it not go all the way to the edge? And I know that George Perez does sell prints, but this seemed really skeptical. And then the the one who said that they pulled the poster from a portfolio, I said, okay, great. What year was that portfolio? Who put it out? Do you have a table of, table of contents? Were there other prints from that portfolio? And of course, they responded by saying they don't have that information. Well, then how can you make the claim that you pulled it from a portfolio if you don't have the information? <laughs> so there's a lot of scammers out there that are just taking, you know, printing out large-scale images as we did as kids. I did that as, as a kid, you know, go to Staples, put a cover on a photocopier machine, get a high-res scan of, uh, of a color image and stick it up on my wall. Great, you know? But this is just, like, really shady. And if it is from George Perez, if it's a print from a convention from years gone by, he normally used to sign all of his stuff. Why would you not get it signed? Why would you not get the artist's signature on there? And uh, why do you have a perfectly clean, you know copy of whatever this print is so that's really shady and I know there's a lot of shady stuff on on eBay but just be very careful when you see your favorite cover or a cover of a comic and it's being sold as a quote-unquote print just email them and say hey you know where'd you get it from and I know you can report some of those auctions and you could I think they have it listed as as you know this is an obvious photocopy or duplicate of something and it's not the original so yeah just some strange eBay goings on which always makes me hesitant to go back on and sell on there but uh, I just wanted to pass that along and see what your experiences has been you know because I you know the ease of eBay and just finding stuff cheaply that's always fun and like I said, I found these magazines and I was like, oh, wow, that's great. You know, I, I don't I love that I now have them in my collection, but it's always like you have to go over some hurdles for eBay. So, all right, there you go. A little bit of eBay talk here. Captain Action, so super powerful you can change him into nine of the mightiest superheroes of all time. Change Captain Action's uniform and face mask and he's Batman, fighting crime with his batarang. He's the mysterious Phantom. He's the Lone Ranger. He's Flash Gordon and he's Superman, flying to the rescue. Get Captain Action, complete with uniform, sword and ray gun. 
then get his nine other great superhero outfits. They each come with action-ready uniform, face mask, and realistic equipment. Fighting evil, that's the creed. Thundering power, lightning speed. New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday for the week of June 1st, starting with Behemoth Comics, Never Ender, one of six by Devin Craft. The year is 2x19, and due to breakthroughs in artificial accelerants, mankind has taken to the stars. At the edge of civilization, the dominant sport is a civilized sword duel to the death. The rules are simple. The duel must be agreed upon by both crows, a time and place must also be agreed upon. Both duelists must acknowledge each other. Only two crows may duel at a time. A crow must have direct contact to his weapon. Once the kill is confirmed, the match is over. In the City of Riots, Merrick, a disaffected terrestrial youth, fights for his survival. Smash the city, smash the state, burn it all, escape to space. $4.99. Reading that list of rules reminds me of Hamilton's Ten Dual Commandments in a way. All right, from Tuttle, we have After Lambana, Myth and Magic in Manila by Eliza Victoria and Mervyn Malonzo. Immerse yourself in a fantasy world of Filipino myth, magic, and supernatural suspense. Lambana, the realm of supernatural fairies known as Duwada, has fallen, and the Magic Prohibition Act has been enacted. To add to his troubles, there's something wrong with Conrad's heart, and only magic can prolong his life. He teams up with Ignacio, a well-connected friend, who promises to hook him up with the Duada and their magical treatments, a quest that's not only risky, but highly illegal. On the shadowy, noir-twinged streets of Manila, multiple realities coexist and intertwine as the two friends seek a cure for the magical malady. Slinky sirens and roaming wrath-like spirits populate a parallel world ruled by corruption and greed, which Conrad must enter to find the cure he seeks. Will Labana spill its secrets and provide the healing balm Conrad needs, or will he perish in the process? $16.99. From DC, we have Justice League, Road to Dark Crisis one-shot, $5.99. The Justice League has fallen in battle, and now we see the aftermath. How does the world react to the Justice League being gone? Which heroes rise up, and which villains try to take advantage? And what dark forces are lying in wait to attack? An all-star roster of DC talent showcases a world without a Justice League and sets the stage for next month's Dark Crisis event. And you have creators like Joshua Williamson and Brandon Thomas, Chuck Brown, Stephanie Phillips, Clayton Henry, Fico Asio, Emanuela Lupicino, Leila Del, Del Duca, and more. From IDW, just like the uh, commercial intro that I played, Captain Action Hardcover, $29.99. The Captain Action comic, based on the classic action figure, has been out of print for more than 50 years. Written by Jim Shooter and Gil Kane, drawn by Kane and Wally Wood, this collection contains the origin of Captain Action and Action Boy, featuring their arch-nemesis, the diabolical Dr. Evil. All five original issues have been scanned 
from first-generation stats and painstakingly recolored using the original comics as guides, beautifully representing a long-lost treasure. I have not read any Captain Action uh, comics, but, you know, this features some DC characters. So I was like, oh, that's that's kind of cool. So I remember the ads. I certainly remember the ads in a lot of those uh, probably 70s, uh, 70s comics. But uh, there you go. Someone might be interested in that collection. And finally, from Image Comics, the Phalanx one-shot by Jonathan Luna, $3.99. Inspired since 1992 by the series that launched Image Comics, Luna creates an homage to honor its 30th anniversary with The Phalanx. Spur, a mercenary in modern-day L.A., chases a mysterious villain and finds herself going through a portal and running into a famous superhero team, where they realize they have a common goal. Now, the blurb seems to suggest that Youngblood is what they're talking about, right? The one that kicked off the Image universe. But the actual cover to Phalanx is an homage to Wildcats Wildcats number one by Jim Lee and company. So uh, I guess you have to read it to find out which one they are talking about. Or maybe they're talking about all of that first year of Image Comics. So I thought that was a cool little one shot to talk about. There you go. Those are my recommendations for the week of June 1st. The Road to Danger Street Part 14. This is the first of two miscellaneous stories that were supposed to go into the first issue special title, but wound up somewhere else. And this particular segment, we're going to take a look at a Robin and Batgirl story that originally was supposed to be released in first issue special number six and instead was released as the first story in Batman Family Number 1, released in June of 1975. This story is entitled The Invader from Hell, and it is by Elliot S. Magan, Mike Grell, edited by Julius Schwartz, uh, under a cover by Mike Grell. Now, if you know the Batman Family title, it is exactly what it says. It's a, It's a... A series that features stories uh, revolving around the Batman family. Now, not only did we get a Robin and Batgirl story, but in this issue, there were also reprints. An an Alfred story from Batman 28, a Commissioner Gordon story from Batman 186, Man-Bat's first appearance, reprinted from Detective Comics 400, and and then there was an Alfred origin story of sorts, narrated by Batman and Robin, that was told in the Marvel Saga style, where they pull various panels from different stories to explain how and why Alfred's appearances had changed over the many decades. And 
the one thing I learned was that they are basically saying that the butler that worked for the Waynes, he is the father of the butler that would work for Bruce and Dick. And eventually he would discover this, this um, Alfred, the Alfred that we know, would discover that Bruce and Dick are Batman and Robin sometime along the way. Now, I'm sure that bit of continuity has changed many times since 1970 before pre-crisis or before the, you know, um, between the 70s and, and the crisis. And uh, who knows how many stories that conflicts before um, this little reprint. I did not find why they decided to pull this story from the rotation of first issue special and put it somewhere else other than maybe they just thought hey this story would work well for a title like uh you know for um the batman family so instead of um robin and batgirl in first issue special number six we got the dingbats of danger street with jack kirby um so the story is simple it's just batgirl and robin teaming up to keep uh, a resurrected Benedict Arnold from taking over Washington, D.C. and trying to cause an insurrection. Hmm. Um, this is taking place when Barbara is a congressperson and Dick is working with her as an aide while he is going to Hudson University. So you have to imagine their ages are somewhere around... 18 for Robin and 25 for Barbara, because if he's a teen wonder um, and he's going to college, I mean, he has to be at least 18, maybe 17, but that would stretch things and that would make uh, a later story point kind of icky. And she has to be at least 25 to be a congressperson. So um, that's a that's a huge spread there. On the opening page, we get a little narrative box that says, fate has thrown a pair of renowned crusaders together in a time and place when greatness is demanded of Batgirl and Robin, the teen wonder. So during the story, things that I've learned, they don't know their identities at this point. Um, again, this is a new story that is recounting their official first appearance. So maybe in the regular title, they already know their story or their identities. And I'm thinking they probably have already told a story like this where they first team up and this is just kind of like a new a new telling of it, possibly. When they do first meet up, she calls him little brother. Uh, he is keeping up with Batman's disapproval of her and he says, of all the blasted hairy Batgirl, you know, he's not he's not happy that she's there. And the whole reason they're teaming up is because Benedict Arnold Benedict Arnold has come to life and is causing causing havoc, like I like I mentioned. They use the word family a couple times in the story, which I actually like, even if it is accidental, because um, you know, I like that that meta word commentary since this is called the Batman family. Um, one time when Barbara is in her office, she is she has a visiting group of students, and one of them asks her if the rumor is true that she's dating Clark Kent. I was like, what? Where did that come from? So eventually they team up. They team up to fight Benedict Arnold. They win, of course. And then somewhere in the ending, you realize that he was brought back to life because of a man named Old Scratch, who's all in red. He kind of looks like Stan Lee. And he turns out to be a devil or the devil or Satan or something like that. So I'll talk about him in a little bit. And then at the end, 
Robin is chiding Batgirl and saying, you know, I hope you realize now how tough this job is and that she should just hang up her costume and do whatever she does in her real identity. So, of course, she's like, oh, yeah, this is exactly what Batman does to me. But instead of arguing like I do with Batman, I know what I can do to Robin. And she plants a kiss on him. And then and then he he quickly disappears. He, he quickly runs away because he's embarrassed. Um, she basically got him to shut up. And I was like, okay, I, you know, I'm not super up on my pre-New Teen Titans Robin stories, but I always knew that Batgirl was meant to be older or read older, and I know that there was some kind of, like, crush between the two of them, even with the age difference. But with her calling him little brother and trying to figure out their ages, you know, there's something a little creepy about it, you know, that all these writers are trying to hook them up even though there is an age gap. So Old Scratch, uh, he winds up um, being drawn into the story standing near Benedict Arnold a lot. And you're like, you don't get an explanation of it until later when you realize there was this deal that he brought Benedict Arnold 200 years from the past because the bicentennial is coming up. And he wanted him to claim the souls of Batgirl and Robin. And, and claim, by that way, claiming the, the heroic souls of the American heroes and then eventually take over, I guess, the rest of the world, um, or at least the rest of the country. So, you know, in my mind, I was like, wow, that's kind of like what Neron did in Underworld Unleashed when he was trying to go after the soul of Captain Marvel. Um, he he looks very much like uh, Baphomet. You know, he has the goat legs and the horns and wings and a tail, Um, When he is finally revealed in his demonic form, um, there's a point where he says, you know, he can't reach Batgirl and Robin because they're in a church. So it's, it's a weird left turn. It's like, where did this come from? I mean, I guess I kind of understand it. They're trying to do some kind of little... I don't know, semi-patriotic story for the Bicentennial, but it's it's a little strange. Um, I wrote here, it's very much like Damn Yankees meets Kid Eternity by way of Stan Lee, because he looks like Stan Lee. So um, in many ways, you could probably retcon this to to be, maybe he is Neron in some way, or, or some kind of agent of Neron. You could also say he could be Trigon in a different Uh, appearance way before the New Teen Titans. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you could fit this character within the larger DC universe. Art-wise, the micro artwork is really great. You know, Dick has his little sideburn, so you know that he's older. Uh, Micro has a way of drawing capes that I'm starting to recognize more and more. Um, They kind of parachute around a person. Uh, He has a lot of shading techniques on the faces that are similar to what I've seen before. And I actually prefer the way he draws Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon more than their superhero identities. It's almost as if he realizes he has to make them uh, look uh, very distinct as civilians because when they're superheroes, you can tell who they are by their costumes, right? But he pays a little more attention when they are out of costume, and I really, really like that. There is a text page that has uh, just a brief rundown of their origin stories, things that I I know, things that I didn't know. For instance, at least by this time, um, 
Dick Grayson, when he lost his parents, he was in a, the circus was in a small community near Gotham City, and that community was called Newton, uh, or maybe Newtown, N-E-W-T-O-N. Um, Bruce decided to become his guardian with the consent of Dick's surviving relatives. I have to imagine that's been explored somewhere, you know, and I'm just forgetting, or maybe I never read it. Uh, you could also say maybe the other circus people are kind of like his surviving relatives, but it made it seem like, you know, maybe he has aunts and uncles out there somewhere. Bruce taught Dick about boxing, wrestling, and judo, and Dick taught Bruce a thing or two about trapeze acrobatics. I love that. Um, there's even a discussion about how Bruce created a Robin costume, but without the R on the chest. When he was training as a youth, he wanted to keep his identity a secret to work with Harvey Harris, an expert in detective work. And while he was um, doing that, uh, Harris said to him, oh, you look like Robin, you know. And this is from a story that dates back to 1955, Detective Comics 226, when Batman was Robin. And then Barbara is pretty much, her origin is pretty much what I remember. She's Commissioner Gordon's daughter. Uh, she fashions a costume for a masquerade party. She comes across Killer Moth and then eventually Batman. He says that he welcomes her into this whole superhero game, but, you know, that's not always the case. She has some adventures with Jason Bard. Um, that's true even all the way up into the modern DC stories. Uh, in At this particular time, Gordon knows that she is Batgirl, and they call her the Dominoed Daredoll which I don't think I've ever read before. So in the story and the text page, that's what they refer to her, her refer to her as. That's her sobriquet, Dominoed Dare Doll. And the two of them they call Dynamite Duo instead of Dynamic Duo. Even the logos, even their logos, I learned some things. I've seen the Batgirl logo before, probably in Who's Who. But this one, this Robin the Teen Wonder, has little wings on the R and the N. And I was like, oh, look at that. That's that's interesting and probably gives, it, it could give a little weight to why when he created the Nightwing costume, he also had wings, right? I mean, of course, a Robin has wings, I get it. But you've never really, I've never really seen that design. You know, when Perez drew that first Nightwing design and all those little yellow um, half ovals that were going across the shoulders, uh, it's very reminiscent of this logo, and maybe, but just in a different direction. So I really like that. So there you go. That's what would have been their first issue special appearance. They're a first official team up, and then they mention in the blurb that next issue, Batman Family Two, they're going to tell the story of their first unofficial team up, which I don't know what that's going to be about. In terms of Danger Street itself, will. Uh, Robin and Batgirl show up, or Dick Grayson, or Oracle? I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know if Tom King is just sticking with the actual title itself and not these little one-offs here and there. So, All right, so next time uh, I will take a look at the story from Green Lantern 100 featuring Green Arrow and Black Canary. Oh yeah! Feedback! It is Feedback Friday. It is a new month. It's June 3rd. So we take a look at all the uh, feedback that I received for the May 
digests, starting with Ed Moore. This one actually is for the digest for April 30th, about my brief conversation about Wonder Woman titles and the trial of the Amazons. And Ed says, I believe most folks have passed on talking about the trial of the Amazons because it was not good. It barely qualified for a Wonder Woman mini. To me, it seems it was a shallow attempt to get an end goal. The story honestly was not well thought out with too many holes and logic jumps. The title, Trial of the Amazons, was one of the biggest bait-and-switch occurrences I have seen in comics in quite a while. So I am currently reading this story, and I just read five issues of Nubia, and I read the first Trial of the Amazons issue, and now I'm going to finish Nubia with issue six and then go into the the uh, crossover titles. Um, I'm just trying to immerse myself in current Wonder Woman content because, you know, I like reading her stories, but I also want to enjoy them as well. <laughs> so I'll talk more about Wonder Woman probably in a future uh, digest. Uh, John Griggis writes in and mentions uh, a couple notes here. He says, glad that you read and enjoyed Lady Cop. It was one of the books that my dad had. It was right down his alley. He was a cop in the South Chicago suburbs in the late 70s, and it covered two of his favorite subjects, ladies and cops. So I love that the issue that John Griggis sent me, that first issue special for Lady Cop, has a lineage, right? Not just from John, but John's dad as well. So um, yeah, I love that. Um, John continues, I've really appreciated your reading all of these first issue special books as we wait for Danger Street. It fascinates me to imagine how all of these characters can possibly come together in a threaded story. I think you may have nailed it on the head that they are creating comic book jazz. I like that. I like that too. That would be a great podcast name if it um, if there isn't already one, comic book jazz. There was a, a really great podcast um, called Burning Trash. God, I'm trying to think. Um, the Jasper. Jasper was the host. I believe that was his name. But I always liked that title, Burning Trash, because uh, it says a lot, right? Like pop culture sometimes can be trashy or looked down on, right? And you go through it quickly. You consume it like fire burning trash. It's just great. I just thought that was a great title. Um, John continues, I have been reading The Trial of the Amazons from the beginning. Wonder Woman is in my pool list, always. You are right that the story isn't making much of a dent. I haven't loved it, although it's growing on me, probably because I'm invested in having read it. I'm not sure whether I'll reread it again. I do like the artwork throughout more than the writing. Uh, yeah, so like I mentioned, I will do a review of a bunch of Wonder Woman stuff. Um, just some quick thoughts, you know. I invested in in trying to catch up on Wonder Woman stuff, so I might as well talk about them. Uh, ben Lyons wrote on the website uh, about the episode that I did uh, with my ranking of the Marvel Disney Plus series. Um, I'm still ca catching up on Marvel shows, but I like your rankings, mostly because I disagree entirely with it. Once I'm done, I will talk. I will troll back and show you what I feel. Uh, unfortunately, Star Wars and Star Trek have so many things for me to watch that I am barely holding even my, even on my backlog. Uh, excellent episode. I really enjoyed the callback to Starman. Thanks, Ben. And I can't wait to hear what your list is. And if anybody has a Marvel... 
Disney Plus ranking, let me know. I have not seen Ms. Marvel. I'm talking about everything between WandaVision and Moon Knight. I had some good responses to the George Perez Digest. Uh, John Hansen says, A great tribute. George's enthusiasm and genuineness comes through. Indeed, a George Perez comic means something special for all of us. Eric from the Longbox Review says, This was a great way to start my day. Chris Beckett, Ben Lyons, anyone who retweeted or liked or shared that episode. I really do appreciate it. Um, I, I haven't talked uh, enough about George Paris since his passing because I've been talking about George Paris, as I mentioned, for, you know, since I've been podcasting. Um, but I know there will be some future talk as well. If you would like to send me feedback, please do, Peter at thedailyrios.com or drop a comment on the website, thedailyrios.com. Go and visit the Daily Rios Instagram. Follow me on Twitter. Go check out that poll, please, and vote. Uh, review me on your favorite podcast catcher, and if I'm not there, let me know. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 563, the 48th Digest for Saturday, June 4th, 2022. Talk to you soon. Holy breaking and entering! It's Batgirl! Quick, Batgirl. Untie us before it's too late. It's already too late. I've worked for you a long time, and I'm paid less than Robin. Same job, same employer means equal pay for men and women. No time for jokes, Batgirl. It's no joke. It's the federal equal pay law. Holy act of Congress!